Hey folks, Scott Weingart here, and this is the MCRIT podcast. Today on the podcast, Professor Karen Brohe, you know, the grandmaster of trauma. I'm not even going to go through all his accolades. They're too numerous to list. And you probably, if you're in emergency medicine or trauma, know who he is already. So there's really no point in introducing him. He does not need one. This episode uh, dwelled on a lot of trauma resuscitation topics that I wanted to see the state of in 2022. We had a fantastic conversation I know we're going to enjoy, and I don't want to dwell on this introduction any further, so let's get right into it. Haha, you thought I was going to get right into it. Psych! No, uh, if you're listening to this, it means you're not a subscriber, you're not a member of MCRIT, and this is just a very brief plea to please consider joining to increase your capabilities at resuscitating the sickest patients to keep up to date with all of the critical care and emergency medicine literature that deals with really sick people. Um, you know, I've been accused by a very small minority of uh, somehow violating some uh, promise by this not being foam, except at this stage of the game, MCRIT is putting out more foam than most of the foam sites are. Um, this episode is free for everyone, and uh, I'm committed to keeping a huge volume of stuff that is free. But in order to do that, it's the members that really are supporting that. So if you are not a member, you're kind of freeloading. I mean, I don't want to put any shame on you uh, if, if you can't afford it. Uh, though, please, if you are in a low-income country and you want to join, just contact us. We'll work something out. I promise you uh, we have not turned away anyone. But come on, don't be a freeloader consider becoming a member. It's cheap. It's tax deductible or reimbursed by your department. And then all of a sudden you don't have to deal with this garbage anymore. So, all right, let's get right into this episode on trauma resuscitation 2022. Now, the first question I'm going to ask Dr. Brohe deals with the refill trial, which was a pre-hospital trial of uh, in patients with hypotension, up to two units of RBCs and two units of plasma pre-hospital versus uh, 250 ml aliquots of normal saline up until one liter. So it's crystalloid versus um, a plasma to RBC one-to-one ratio resuscitation. And it was a negative trial. If you want to see the details, either read the actual trial, but if you want the summary, obviously the place to go is the bottom line summary. There's also an amazing scent Emlyn's post on this, but, uh, you know, that's the essence of it. So just to give you some context for the question I'm about to ask. Now, I think you could guess where the first question's going to go. You've had some time to mull this over. Could you please explain what happened with refill? So I don't think I can, actually. I've thought about it a lot, obviously, as have many people. And I think it's very difficult to both understand what's happened, what the results of refill and how the nature of the trial can you know be translated and what issues it's very easy to pick apart a trial and not agree you know with it and say i didn't do this and they didn't do that but it was a ultimately it was a pragmatic trial they did what they did and the findings are it's not like there were small signals that were inconclusive it was it was properly negative really which i think actually i so I'm su- I'm not surprised it was negative because it was small. Yeah. I'm surprised that there were no signals at all there, really. 
do I, and I think on a population, you know, it has implications on a population level for, for population services and things. I, I think the two things, well, I think the one big question is, is everything that we believe about bleeding wrong and dilution and, you know, how you should treat it wrong? Um, and I don't think that's the case. So I think the results of the trial are specific to the trial. And they also are not consistent with things like the results of the PAMPA trial. So where there was a signal in refill was in early mortality. And I would hope that we would see some more details of that in some secondary analyses, as, and I'm sure the team are doing that. And that's very consistent with what we saw when we introduced pre-hospital red cells onto London's air ambulance, that we saw an early increase in survival but didn't track through to late survival and actually when you look at the mortality curves for the Royal London Hospital year on year our in-hospital mortality went up significantly when we introduced red cells and we and because sicker patients are coming in they're surviving and they're coming in and and actually it was a group of patients that we had to learn how to deal with and so over the subsequent three or four years our mortality dropped again but we had a definite spike which was related to that i wonder if what has happened is that essentially you've seen that within the refill trial but the major trauma centers haven't had the time to be able to get used to Mm. those new patients so they haven't had the time to you know adjust and in because it took it certainly took us some years and you know, a good proportion of the refill sites were red cell naive at the start of it. So I think that's one explanation. I think on the other side, you say maybe it's patient selection. You know, it probably only helps people who are actively bleeding at the time. And sure, if you're not, if you've bled and you've stopped bleeding, sure, you could be resuscitated with saline or especially if you then go on and have red cells and plasma in hospital or something and and it it almost certainly won't make a difference and the argument is you should only give it to people who are but of course it's very difficult to do pre-hospitally if not impossible at the moment you know uh, and i think this is something for all trials we know that we need to get better at identifying subgroups that respond but fundamentally we don't have that knowledge at the moment so i think it's a really interesting result i think it's something that will spur more analysis and allows us to question more about what we do do i think it means the end of pre-hospital blood products no i hope it's an impetus for more more study and more understanding of that you said something fascinating there which is you had sicker patients as a result of pre-hospital red cell availability, and then your trauma center had to adjust to taking care of those sicker patients. What adjustments did you actually make? You were already performing at a pretty high level. What were the adjustments? Yeah, I think it's not one specific thing. It's always incremental with these things. You learn you know, that you have to work a bit harder and a bit faster uh, you know, in general on them. You, you may have to provide different levels of support, both in terms of the therapeutics that you um, bring in, but also you know, the attending presence and the specialists that you bring to bear. I don't think we've bottomed out exactly what it is you know, that we did. And obviously we brought in 
other things along the way since we introduced red cells in, I think it was 2014 or something like that. But it's that it's well documented that the more you do pre-hospitally to improve pre-hospital survival, the worse your in-hospital outcomes get until you get better at looking after those patients. And I think it's the most likely explanation for what we see with reefer. All right. That's intriguing. Who in 2022 should get whole blood? If you have it available, so I th- I tell you what I think, people who are should be who are bleeding, should have baseline empiric resuscitation with some combination of blood components that look like whole blood, and it if you've got whole blood, that's great. And I think the place where it's most useful is pre-hospitally, just because it's logistically so difficult to give red cells and plasma in combination. So I think in hospital, you can be more sophisticated in all sorts of ways about, and you would hope that you would be more sophisticated in hospital. But certainly pre-hospital, I think there's an argument that it is logistically easier at least to to give whole blood. Do I think whole blood is a panacea that fixes stuff? No, whole blood doesn't fix anything. just about keeps you where you are probably i think it's very different from fresh whole blood that is pulled out of the soldier's veins and immediately given to another patient if you're talking stored blood products in any form then they are adequate but not great let's take it the complete opposite direction a lot of the europeans have gone to factor-based resuscitation what's your feelings on that it's like you said it's completely the other way it's, and I think what we're seeing now is that there's a convergence of those two, two views. And what you need probably is both, but we don't know yet where the, where the Venn diagram of those two things fits exactly. You need to stop people getting worse with some empiric treatment that looks like whole blood, but there are coagulation de- deficits that appear either initially because of you know, the endogenous coagulopathy or after a long period of bleeding, you know, certain factors become deficient despite whole blood or balanced resuscitation. And those people will need factors probably to rescue them from their coagulopathy. And I think and that's, I think, where more sophisticated approaches come in. So I think the classically the Germans and the Austrians, it was no plasma, it was clear fluids and concentrates. The US view was red cells and plasma and you didn't need to do anything else. It was just one to one to one. I think what we're you know, where we're converging is that we need both and what we need to do is understand what those therapies that will benefit are and who needs them. Let's let's zone in on that a little bit. So Let's go really unsophisticated. You get a trauma patient unexpected at a very small center. They're going to be transferred to you at the major trauma center. And the docs on the ground really feel the patient is bleeding. Would you empirically give uh, factor replacement at that point? They have the four-factor PCC, and they have a couple units of red cells. Would you say just give the blood, or would you have them empirically give the four-factor PCC? So at the moment, I would say we don't know, and therefore I would say no. There are people who do that, Tony Joseph and sorry, and and others, and there will be a trial coming up, a TAP trial, a presumptive PCC, which should tell us 
at, we obviously, we've just finished the Cryostat 2 trial, which essentially is presumptive fibrinogen, although it's as cryoprecipitate, not as fibrinogen concentrate, and there are time issues related to that. But I think in places where you don't have a lot of product and patients are transferred long distances and you're maintaining them with red cells, whether that is PCC or lyophilized plasma for resuscitation, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I don't think we're sophisticated enough to know that. I don't think PCC will be the panacea if that's what you if that's the only thing that you've got. But but there may well be a group of patients who need some concentrate therapy. All right. To switch to a slightly different topic, the literature has been vacillating on this quite a bit in the past few years. What is your current MAP target? Or you don't have to just pick one if you have a multiplicity depending on the patient. But what are you shooting for as your resuscitative goal? So I don't have one, mm. I think, is my honest answer. I think the patient has a map that represents the state that they are in at the moment. And that map, will, whatever we give them, the patient will vacillate around that or that systolic pressure. I think the goal of what we're trying to do is give them enough volume to perfuse their coronaries so the heart stays alive, but not so much volume, be it with red cells or whole blood or anything that they become more dilute while they're, while they're bleeding. So, you know, I think the key approach is to be judicious, like not go all in with, with everything, but be judicious in what you give and do the best you can with what, with what you've got. And you know, map targets, it doesn't matter what the map target is, you never achieve it. You either overshoot or you undershoot or you cycle around it. You know, we're, again, we're just not that sophisticated. So I think it's understanding the, the goal. There's a level I don't want it to be at. I don't, you know, I want to use the heart. So I want a carotid pulse. I think shock is a big deal. And in many ways, we've sacrificed perfusion for coagulation for some time. But I don't think going back to high maps is going to be the answer. Because we're not at a stage where we can't, where we won't end up again sacrificing coagulation. So we still need more new stuff to come down the line to deal with the shock while we're correcting the coagulation, or we need to stop people bleeding earlier without creating ischemia. This whole area is not a done deal yet. No and so I think in the meantime, be judicious, don't have a specific target, but understand the physiology, I think is. You know, a bit nebulous answer. I'm yeah, sorry, I think it's it completely makes sense from the philosophical side, but I'm going to push you on this just a little bit. And so I'm the nurse and I have another unit of red and another unit of yellow in my hand and I'm looking at the patient and I say, Dr. Broey, should I give more product or not? And you have to give me an answer because I, I could hang them on the massive transfusion device or not. What are you using as the basis? Even if it is a kind of nebulous thing, there must be some conglomeration of perfusion markers, MAP, end tidal CO2, et cetera, that you're using. So I think the most important thing is the trajectory. Is the patient going up or going down? And am I giving volume to hold them at a certain map while I'm getting to the operating room and things? Am I using it as a test to see how fluid responsive they are? Am I using it to see whether I'm going to be able to go to CT or whether I'm going to have to get out of there quickly? So it's I'm using volume more as a test of their physiological state. If you had to push, I don't like blood pressures below 70 systolic. Mm. 
but I'm not very good at maps because I've never, the map is always the smallest number on the thing. So I'm a systolic kind of guy, even though it doesn't make sense physiologically particularly, but 70 systolic, I'm not particularly uncomfortable with. I'm happy that I wouldn't give anything around 90, you know, 90 or above in people who I thought were bleeding. And there's a kind of a gray zone uh, in the middle. And again, it depends which hospital you're in. It depends where you're going. It depends what you think you're going to have to do to the patient. It depends where your scanner is. It, it, it's not a one-size-fits-all solution. In general, 70, 80, 90, I'm okay for a while with that thing. You know, not 70 for an hour. Yep. No, I think that's very fair. Where do vasopressors fit in? Again, the Europeans love them. Americans in general don't like them so much, though maybe vasopressin is a different deal. What are your feelings? So vasopressors make no sense to me at all. I think when you think about what we're trying to do, which is if you're giving volume and the issue is ischemia that's determining the outcome. So we're, we're being judicious with volume. We're, we're using some sort of medium permitted hypotensive approach. What are you giving vasopressors for? So you don't give volume, you don't give coagulation products. What we want is to get the best distal perfusive flow for a certain pressure that we're able to achieve. And I don't think pressors do that, even vasopressin. If anything, you'd want some kind of vasodilator that you would be able to keep up with from centrally from some sort. So. I don't think the data supports pressors. There may be a different argument if you've got a zone one Reboa caster in and you want to, but still, again, A, it's niche, it's unproven, and there's all sorts of issues with distal ischemia. So I don't think there's a role for, there's, there's certainly no proven role for phase pressor, and I, and I don't understand the biology. You mentioned Reboa, that was later on on my list, but we might as well discuss it now. It hasn't really seemed to have uh, achieved the glory that it first set out to. What's your feelings on it now? So I think Reboa was, is always going to be difficult. It's a complex intervention in a complex group of patients. And while it does some things which are good, reduces flow distally, possibly increases afterload, which may be good, it also does bad things like create large zones of distal ischemia and things so again i think it's a technology that you have to learn you have to learn how to use and what it does to patients and then you also it feels like version 1.0 of something that we need to get to version 9.0 and also it needs a number of adjuncts to be developed that will support its use so the principle is probably correct and but and partial reboa may be version two we still need to be able to work out how to deal with that massive ischemia we need to be able to have balloon times that are only 10 minutes or 10 minutes at a time or something i don't think it's a case of ditching it or accepting it i think it it's a work in progress and it's a part of a an armamentarium that might help us to make create some new survivors but it probably won't do that on its own Fair. Where does TXA live in 2022? So bored of talking about <laughs> if so there's more evidence to support the use of tannic acid than pretty much anything else that we've just talked about. And yet 
less people use tranexamic acid than anything else that we've just talked about. I don't understand why you wouldn't use it because it's clearly safe. It's clearly effective. We know that in the biology, trauma patients get massive fibrinolysis, most of which is not visible on any diagnostic device that is in routine use. So I think you should give it. We give it now as a two gram bolus and we give it to both patients that we think are bleeding and we give it to patients we think have a traumatic brain injury. Mm. So that's our practice. We're obviously evaluating it and auditing it and doing some studies around it, but but that's our. You uh, put out a tweet, I think a year ago, that just brought joy to my heart. And you said that the uh, lethal triad is broken. Two out of the three are not actually lethal. They're probably effects, not causes. And you suggested a new lethal triad. Tell me. Yeah, I think the, if you think about any classification has got to be useful because it's got to guide, or any framework has got to be useful because it's got to guide therapy. And the problem with coagulopathy, acidosis, and hypothermia is that the acidosis and the hypothermia aren't killing the patient at the time. They don't have significant effects on the coagulation at the, at the levels that they reach. And you also can't correct them. And it doesn't make a difference to outcome if, if you correct them. Not, so it's not that they're not happening. It's just that they're the wrong target. But whereas the things that you do need to target, and in terms of the things that you need to look for and fix in part that physical thing, are coagulation, hypocalcemia, and hyperkalemia and i think for me those are the when i've got somebody's peri-arrest those are the things that need looking for and fixing or just empiric treatment anyway and those are the things that i worry about not what's the base deficit of course should malperfusion be on that list malperfusion is base deficit you know and, and malperfusion is volume and shock and things like that until you stop the bleeding the most important malperfusion is malperfusion of the myocardium in our patients because even if you stop them bleeding it's the cause of late deaths primarily is essentially a dead or dying or insufficient and but the only thing that we can do for that at the moment is really to stop the bleeding keep the blood pressure sufficient for coronary perfusion and make sure that you're not producing a a physiologic milieu which is cardioplegic and being hypocalcemic and hyperkalemic is profoundly cardiac where you get to the point where you've got a patient who's unresuscitatable so i think those patients are on the cusp those are the things to dive into all right if you have time i'd like to do some rapid fire listener questions go on all right what trauma activation criteria would you get rid of you might have already gotten rid of it at your center, so we'll, we'll generalize it to when you're encountering, and I guess the ones that piss me off, and I'm curious to hear if they do for you as well, is the mechanism-based criteria, but answer any way you like. Yeah, so we, during COVID, actually, we implemented across London a new triage tool, which we have been working on for a couple of years in terms of looking at the effect of it, and essentially, we have got rid of mechanism, age, pregnancy, and anticoagulants, I think is the other one, as, as primary bypass criteria. Now that's in part, that's not necessarily because the, so mechanism has a very low yield and, and it, it's really of no value once you've done an assessment of the, of the patient's uh, physiology and, and injury pattern. The others 
are reliant on a functional trauma system where if you don't primary bypass to a you know, level one trauma center or major trauma center, that you know that the hospital that they do go to will be able to assess them, pick up any you know, injuries that need specialist care and that the system will then be able to transfer those patients down. Again, it depends where you are and it depends what system you live in. But certainly in London with 30 high functioning trauma units, which are level three type equivalents in the US, we are confident that we can take, you know, so the only criteria that we use are anatomy and physiology um, now for primary bypass. Yeah, I like that. All right, I'll end on one more question if you're game. What is the biggest error in the resuscitative phase of trauma? Error? Yeah. That you could change? We don't really have any errors in London. <laughs> What's the biggest error? So the biggest thing that we have an issue with at the moment is actually not about resuscitation. It's about recognizing ischemic limb. And it's the thing that crops up again and again and again. So that's our biggest issue in the thing around education. What's the biggest... Before you change that answer uh, to something else, just what would be the way you'd fix that if you were there at the bedside? It's obviously not going to happen. What do you do differently? Is it just a better pulse exam? Are you actually using a, a conglomeration of findings to discover that? Yeah, so I think it's, so first, so rule out, not ruling. Most people spend a lot of time trying to see whether they can feel a pulse or using different modalities or different pulses. When there's a, when, if you can't feel a pulse, you've got to prove that there isn't a vascular injury. If you can palp, if you can palpate a pulse, then that's good. And if you can't palpate a pulse, you've got to do something to exclude an injury and you've got to do it quickly. And, and CT angio is the way to do that. There's no other way of doing that. So we, so again, in London, so if you don't have a palpable pulse, you've got, you need to get a CT angio with, it, with a report back in 30 minutes, wherever you are in the system, whatever. And, but it's easy to say, but then there's a whole bunch of education that has to go around that, you know, and governance, uh, you know, and then how do you transfer patients? And, and what do you do if a centre can't get a CT so there's a whole stuff around it, but it's the single biggest cause of missed injury and severe consequence at the moment. I think most people in my experience do a pretty good job now of trauma resuscitation. There's always things you can shave off. There's always things you can do better. There are always issues where some, something goes wrong. And so it's like a you know, constant whack-a-mole, making sure that the process uh, is right. But I... We don't see a lot of error, I think, per se, but we see areas where you could do better. You've been so generous with your time. I can't thank you enough. People are going to love hearing from you. And thank you for coming on. That was perfect, man. Thank you again. That's fantastic. Pleasure. Glad to see it's still going strong. Oh, yeah. This keeps me going. So it's all all good. I'll be 75. A lot of work. Not for the faint heart. (laughs) I hope to see you very soon in person. Yeah, brilliant. Thanks. Be well.